Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Well, this is frightening because the Lord is speaking to people who were deeply religious. Church people. People who thought they were going to heaven. People who were self-deceived. Those said they believed but had no fruit in their lives that proved it. Those who were hearers and had intellectual knowledge of the word but were not doers of the word. Each of us likely at least know people who are going to hear this awful declaration. Our pastor is very kind to us uh, to remind us regularly to be suspect of our own spirituality. And in 2 Peter 1, verse 10 this morning, we were reminded to be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing of you. So in in an effort to be certain, I would like to, this morning, in addition to our text, point you to some tools, maybe ask some questions, Um, where we can together uh, hopefully would be helpful in examining our hearts one of those um, one of those tools is this little book and I want to tell you some more about that but first the idea of this audit like an audit came to my mind the the idea of conducting an audit and the the um, the definition for audit is interesting it says a formal examination of an organization or individual's account or financial situation And I thought about our account before the Lord. Apart from Christ, because of sin, we have an infinite negative in our account. Christ is perfectly righteous, and when we're in him, he wipes away all of our sins and applies all of his righteousness to our account. And on Judgment Day... The only line item in the accounting world that will matter will be, are we in Christ or not? If we're not, we're on our own. Well, I hope we're all in Christ. But as we work through the passage this morning, let's be willing to ask ourselves any hard question. Like I said, one of the tools that I want you to be aware of is this little book, if you don't already know about it. It's called The Almost Christian Discovered. And it has a secondary title, or The False Professor Tried. Um, This may be a little book. You can see that. It carries a very big stick. Uh, Listen to a sample of this man, Matthew Mead, from the 1600s. Listen to a sample of this man's call. He says, Oh, take heed that thou art not found overvaluing other things and undervaluing thy soul. Shall thy flesh, nay, thy beast... Be loved, and shall thou, thy soul be slighted? 
Will thou clothe and pamper the body and yet take no care of the soul? This is as, this is as if a man should feed his dog and starve his child. Meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God will destroy both it and them. Oh, let not a tottering, perishing carcass have all your time and care as if the life and salvation of the soul were not worth the while. So I think up here I've got a slide that helps us to see some of the assertions that this shepherd argues. And he makes a very great and very thorough uh, case for each one of these. It goes into uh, kind of in concert with the idea of this almost Christian discovery. He says, we may have much knowledge of God and be yet almost a Christian. He says, we may have great gifts. We may have a high profession in the church. We may do much against sin. We may desire grace. We may tremble at the word. We may delight in the word. We may be a member of the church and be yet almost a Christian. We may have great hopes of heaven. We may be under great visible changes. We may be very zealous in the matters of religion and yet be almost a Christian. We may be much in prayer. We may suffer much for Christ. We may be called of God. We may, in some sense, have the Spirit of God, he says. We may have some kind of faith. We may love the people of God. We may go far in obeying the commands of God. We may do all as to the external duties that a true Christian can and yet be no better than almost a Christian. Now, I'm, I'm very thankful for this book. It's terribly wonderful. It has been a blessing to me. And I have placed a bunch of copies over here to the right. It's maybe 10 copies, but if you want one, I want you to take it. It would be an honor for us to give this to you. If you get there and it's run out, there's a paper. Write your name on it. We would love to provide you a copy. This is a, a tool for you to begin this audit process, to be sure, like we've read this morning, of your calling. If you do read it, catch this note of the author. It's important. It says, The gospel does not speak things to wound believers, but to awaken sinners and formal professors. As there are none more averse than weak believers to apply promises and comforts to, of the gospel to themselves, for whom they are properly designed, so there are none more ready than they to apply threats and severest things of the word to themselves, for whom they were never intended. As disciples, as the disciples, when Christ told them, one of you shall betray me, they that were innocent suspected themselves most and therefore cry out, Master, is it I? So, weak Christians, when they hear sinners reproved or the hypocrite laid open in the ministry of the word, they presently cry out, is it I? Well, it's not my intention in any way to cause fear for any Christian this morning. Uh, in fact, 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. My intention is more in line with 1 John 5.13. It says, I write these things to you 
who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Certainly the Lord wants us to know that we have eternal life. But I believe by asking ourselves hard questions, we'll get serious about dealing with any uncertainty. If we can't stand before hard questions now, we will not do well on our day of judgment, right? If we find through the audit that we're not in good standing, now is a moment where we still have time to turn to the Lord for mercy and grace. So, for our text this morning, I've selected 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5 as our jumping off point. And for the audit, the big question is, do I hold to a form of religion but deny its power? So let's read our text here together. 2 Timothy 3. But realize this. That in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brooders, uh, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, Conceited lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. I plan to focus mainly on verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they denied its power. And I hope to answer these questions. Who does this, denies its power, and what is the power denied? I've kind of broken down our time into three sections. Uh, one, unbelieving professors. Two, unspiritual possessors. And three, unmeasurable power. It, it may, should be immeasurable power, but we can look at that together later. This is diving into the middle of a, the second letter from Paul, where he's encouraging Timothy in his work as a pastor the gospel of Jesus Christ was going out and many were being told that they were sinners in need of a savior. And Jesus was and is God, the lamb who came to take away sin. The gospel that taught and still teaches that each man and woman has an infinite sin, an infinite amount of sin in their heart. And that because of this, we all fall short of the glory of God and find ourselves separated from a holy God, completely unable to approach him, fully deserving eternal punishment. We're God's enemy, fundamentally offensive to him in every way. So the church then is a body, the church that this pastor is preaching to is a body of born again or born of the spirit believers who the spirit of God has opened their eyes to this sin problem. Cause them and us, as we gather this way, to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and the perfect example to follow in living for the glory of God. However, from the outset of the church, there have been imposters, some to be sure for selfish gain, hypocrites who were ambassadors of Satan, factious people who are 
used to hurt the church and lead people away, and others who came for the blessing only, entering through the wide gate. Longing for God to give them happiness or victory or ease or status, and then others come who are babes, babes in Christ, not yet mature, and they're there but kind of flopping around like a toddler. And it's a little hard to judge the fruit of their lives, but here in this passage, Paul is explaining that the, in the church, which should look different from the world, there are those who are acting like normal, fleshly, worldly, godless people. Well, there's several things that I would like to clarify about the passage to kind of help frame up the context. We can understand uh, the last times uh, to be seasons during the days after Christ's first coming, um, but before his second coming. We can also understand difficult times to be seasons of opposition to the church, uh, seasons of violent assaults against the church. And like labor pains, these seasons of difficulty are gradually getting worse and worse with less and less gaps between them. The world has always been full of self-loving people, so let us understand with the context here, Paul's warning to Timothy and to us is that in these coming days, the reason why he's making this list and trying to draw a line of distinction is because in these coming days, these difficult seasons, people will even act like this in the church. And of course, we see a strong admonition to avoid any leader who conducts himself in this way. False teaching and ungodly living go hand in hand. And certainly false teachers uh, create disorder in the church. So let's listen to Jesus on the subject in Matthew 24. He says, Jesus, Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to a point to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened. For those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For the, the nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many because lawlessness is increased. Most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel, the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. Look at Acts 20, 
verses 29 and 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And then later in Matthew 7, look at this passage. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown away into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. And then look here at Jude, Jude 17 through 19. Beloved, you ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own, godly, own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And then Matthew 24, verses 24 and 25, speaking on this same idea, Jesus says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you, in advance. So it's obvious that these false teachers, these ambassadors of Satan, have had a huge effect on our culture. There have been so many seasons of attack on the church. And week after week, our pastor stands right here and warns us of so much danger that's all around us. And I've thought a good bit on the story of Lot and the effect that his culture had on him. It's unbelievable to me how his decisions were affected. Um, you know, in Genesis 18 and 19, we're allowed to see kind of the wickedness of the culture uh, in Sodom. And Lot was considered righteous. God had compassion on him. But it appears to me that he's an extreme example of how a, a culture can impact your thinking. Listen to these few words in Genesis chapter 19. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called Lot and said to him, where are the men who came to you tonight? Speaking of two angels who came to destroy Sodom. They said, bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. But Lot went out to them at the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, brothers, do not act wickedly. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not had relations with man. Please let me bring them out to you and do to them whatever you like. Only do nothing to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. I'm sure it was right to try to protect these men. I'm sure. But to offer up your daughters in this way? I don't understand that at all. My daddy heart will, can't even wrap my head around that. But it does make me wonder. 
How does the wicked culture that we live in affect us in ways that we're unaware? So to continue with our running audit, a few things that have come out of these passages we've read, let's just ask ourselves, you know, one, has my love grown cold? Have we left our first love? Am I entertaining perverse things that are drawing me away? Has the culture around me affected my thinking and actions um, in unbiblical ways? This is a war, and we're, we're right in the middle of the battleground. Ephesians 6 reminds us of that. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So the war has been on, and, and the seasons of difficulty are getting worse, and the assaults, the assaults have, have been and continue to be violent on the church. The effects have been, un, we'll say it, immeasurable. The culture is completely dominated by self. Self-worship. And now the church is selling the same garbage. So the question I would like to answer, in addition to the false teachers described here, who else holds to a form of godliness but denies its power? So our first point here is unbelieving professors. Again, we're at war. So let's look at Matthew 13, see what it says here, speaking on the tares among the wheat. In verse 24, uh, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, the enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bored grain, the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. See, the enemy wants to make us be divided. He wants us to have disunity. And he wants to make a mockery of the church by having it filled up with imposters. And when they act like the world, the world can cry out, hypocrite, and silence their own conscience. So as we approach this this list that we have before us, Let's ask God to expose anywhere that we might look like the world here. So again, back to 2 Timothy. In verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, 
for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. So first on the list is lovers of self. And I heard one of my former pastors speak about this and say that self-love is really the sewer pipe that all the rest of this garbage flows out of. So it's helpful to kind of see this list as different expressions of self-love. If we're lovers of self, if we're practicing that, we're opposed to God. And rather than Philippians 2, which is this great uh, example and marching orders for the church that kind of says, you know, do nothing from selfishness or empty, you know, conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. Like this self-love kind of turns it on its head. Play, let's play out the opposite. Let's say the mantra of loving self is this. Do everything in selfishness and empty conceit. Ugh. But in pride, regard everyone else as less important than yourself. Look out only for your interest and never for others in this great competition. See, this is pride. God is opposed to the proud and vice versa. Therefore, these are not Christians that are being dealt with in this passage, but they're unbelievers in the church. So in our running audit, here are some more tough questions. Would those who know me best, would those who know me best say that my life is characterized by this list? So let's take it on just a little. We'll just kind of breeze through it. But the idea of lovers of money. Are we covetous? Are we materialistic? Are we craving possessions? Are we boastful? Are we, are we a braggart? Is every story, am I the hero of every story? Are we, are we arrogant? Are we self-exalting? Determined to have our own way? Are we revilers? Are we abusive and slanderous? Are we disobedient to our parents? Are we ungrateful? The idea of ungrateful, you know, you're not, you're not saying thank you because, quite frankly, you feel that everything you've received is deserved. No reason to say thanks. Are we unholy? The idea of unholiness is this gross indecency. For example, a refusal to bury a dead body or incest. A kind of being committed to a, l a lust with no thought of propriety, decency, or personal reputation. We might, we might say shameless. Are we shameless? Are we unloving? The idea carries the idea of heartless without even a natural affection. Kind of like you don't even love your own family irreconcilable, those who refuse to change no matter how to, despite their own situation, how bad it becomes, um, are not willing to forgive, don't really want forgiveness from anyone else. Malicious gossips. Are we hateful accusers? Are we set on harming others? 
expressing our jealousy and anger? Are we without self-control? Just no care for what others think, just totally controlled by the passions of our lust. Are we brutal? Are we insensitive and malicious, even eventually becoming kind of savage, just purposefully hurtful? Haters of good. This idea is that we, we hate what should be loved, but we love what should be hated. We see a lot of that in the world today, don't we? Treacherous. Are we guilty of betrayal or deception? Reckless. Are we careless? Are we kind of rash and just so occupied with self that we don't even really notice what's going on with others around us? Are we conceited? Do we have a much higher view of self than is justified? Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is hard to see in our world right now. The idea of, in addition to wanting comfort in all of the extravagance of life, um, that, that these people take kind of a sadistic pleasure in, in harming others and, and love it not more than God, but love it rather than God. Again, this is all part of the enemy's plan to sow these type of people into the church People who think that they're Christians. But the fruit of their life is wickedness. Because of false teaching and these false teachers, there are many who think that they're Christians who are not. They've come in through the wide gate. So let's look at that gate. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, speaking on the narrow and the wide gate is where we see this. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. But for the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. So another question you can add if you're taking them down is, have I come through the narrow gate? Now I want to explore this. What is the narrow gate? Let's look more at that. Let's turn to, if you want to turn, if you want to read up here, John uh, chapter 3, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. It goes like this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, can he? And Jesus answered and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. So to enter through the narrow gate, we must be, one, born of the spirit. And then in Luke 18... 
speaking to the rich young ruler, we see more on this issue. It says, the ruler questioned him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus heard this. He said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They, heard, they who heard it said, And who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. So we must be born again, and for man, on our own, it's impossible. Well, let's look at 1 John. I just want to get the first little bit, or the second bit of uh, chapter 1 into the first little bit of chapter 2. So just bear with me, we'll just read a little bit more here. But this, this idea of the narrow gate, I think, is, is seen here well. So, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin... We're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Wow. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, and if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sin, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this, we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So, to enter the narrow gate, we must believe that God is who he says he is. Holy and completely separate from sin. And that he's just. He, he must punish every sin. To enter the narrow gate, we must believe that we are full of sin. That we need help. That God has provided a perfect 
substitute. And that Jesus, the Son of God, is that substitute. And that he totally satisfies the justice of a holy God. And once we believe all that, that we would want to obey his commands, that there's a change of our desire. Before, we were slaves to sin. We just wanted to do what we wanted to do. But now, our desires have changed. And we want to obey. So, another question. Have we come through the narrow gate? If so, rather than seeing ourselves as good and constantly defending ourselves, we begin to see ourselves rightly. And we sound a lot more like Paul in the Romans chapter 7. You know this passage, right? Where he says, I'm doing the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm running from the very clothes I'm wearing, he says. And I'm so thankful to the Lord for those words from Paul. We, we saw his life was dramatically changed, and here he was struggling with sin. So we know it's common to man, common to Christians. But this inner battle, Paul's referencing, it leads us to our second category uh, this morning, our second point, of those who hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. And I believe a lot of us will find ourselves in this spot. We believe, we believe that God is holy, we believe we're full of sin, that we need help, that God is the substitute, that Jesus is the Son of God. We, we trust Him, we obey His commands, and we're practicing obedience, and there is a change of desire. We do want to do that, but we find ourselves unable or maybe unwilling at times to, to obey. So we deny the power available to us. Second point is unspiritual believers. Ephesians 2, talking about us being made alive in Christ. In Ephesians 2, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in verse 2. And down in verse 4, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We were dead in our sins, spiritually dead, but God made us alive together with Christ to show us the riches of his grace and for us to do work that he's prepared beforehand. Let's look at Romans six seventeen through 18. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. See, it says we're freed from sin. So we don't have to do that. We don't have to sin. Well, that's amazing. That means the moments that we choose to, though, are moments that we deny the power. Right? Is that fair? A little naughty? Okay. Nodding of the head. Good. I see you. Look at Galatians 5, 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desire of the flesh. 
For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. We're either walking by the Spirit or we are drifting in the flesh. Again, if we have the Spirit but walk away from Him and just drift in the flesh, we deny the power. Yes? Here's why. Here's why we do this. Follow along with me just one more time. Here we go. First uh, John chapter 2 and 12 through 14. We see this continuum of spiritual maturity and how it happens. It's so critical. He says, I'm writing to you little children because your sins have been forgiven for you for his namesake. And I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one I have written to you children because you know the Father, and I've written to you fathers because you know him who has been from the beginning. And I've written to you young men because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So in this passage, we see something in this continuum. The first term for children is speaking to everyone in the family of God. You've been forgiven for his namesake. Um, but the next term for children is more like babies. So we see babies, young men, and fathers. The focus point here is that the difference between babies and young men is what? That the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. Now, babies don't always obey, right? Because they don't know the word a lot of times. But also, when we don't hear the Father, when we don't hear His commands, we don't obey, right? And then we deny the power. This is confirmed by Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. So read along with me there. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, making the most of your time, but because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. 
So right here in this passage, we see be filled with the Spirit, which is a command, is then followed by a list of consequences that happen, that occur when we are filled with the Spirit, when we're being moved by the Spirit, when we're obeying word, uh, you know, thought by thought, and uh, we're surrendering our mind to the word of Christ. Well, this is, uh, that same list is found and confirmed in Colossians 3.16, where it says, the Lord of, uh, excuse me, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let God's word richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and singing and with thankfulness in your heart to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So just see these passages, they correlate in such a way that they confirm each other. And it says, having the word of Christ in you, surrendering to it, this is the same as being filled with the Spirit. As we have the word of Christ in us, we will mature from babies to young men and so on. Have the word of Christ richly dwelling in us. Surrender to it moment by moment, thought by thought. So we have the spirit of God. We have the word. And we have the ability to obey. But still, I'm honest, Right here, we as believers, we often deny the power that we're talking about. And in those fleshly moments, that's what we're doing. We're just denying it. But, but I guess the, we get to our third point. What exactly is the power that we're, that, that's being denied? So let's talk about this. This is very exciting. So the third point, unmeasurable or immeasurable power. The power is in our union to Christ. We we are united to Christ. If we have closed with Christ, I like that term, closed with Christ. Listen, Listen to this quote from Matthew Mead. He says, I think it's up here, yeah. The altogether Christian closes with Christ and accepts of Christ upon gospel terms. Catch this. True union makes a true Christian. Many close with Christ, but it is upon their own terms that they take him and own him, but not as God offers him. Well, this is part of the quote that I've included in your bulletin I like the way he, the rest of the quote is very special, but I love this language about closing with Christ. Think, think about this, um, closing on a house. A lot of us have probably done that, but if you've never done this, if you've never closed on a house, it's an interesting experience. It's, it's legal, it's a legal transaction where you sign a ton of documents. Maybe you don't read every one of them. I don't know. Probably should. There's people in here that do Good for you. It's a legal transaction where you sign a ton of documents. And in a, let's say in a house closing, you're signing documents with an entity, let's say perhaps a bank. And that entity is saying they're going to pay for the entire amount for something that you want, let's say a house. And you will live by their terms for the rest of your life, basically. Right? Kind of. So I love this language that Mead is using 
because if we've closed with Christ, he's saying he has paid for that most valued possession that we have, right? Redemption. Think about this. He bought back, he bought back what was lost in the fall. Relationship, relationship with the God of the universe. What? For every believer who has closed with Christ, we are united to Christ. Listen to John 17, 22 and 23. You can read along here if you want. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Now, this is, this is astounding. I, perfected in unity, one with Christ. Well, the idea of oneness with God, this is such a wonderful thought. I, wow. Look at John 14, verse 23. Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. Wow. God will, God will live with those who love him. This is staggering. Let me ask you this. If God lives in your house, what are you worried about? Do you, do you have anything you worry about? Someone's going to break in. Come on in. Do you know God? This is a good thing to be here. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I, which now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In Colossians 3, 3 through 4, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We can surely agree here with Philippians 3, 8, and 9, right? More than that, I count all things to be lost in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Knowing Christ. Not just knowing about him. L listen to our pastor. Here's one of these books. If you don't have this book, oh man, get this book. It's called The Marvel of Being in Christ. Pastor Dave, on the issue, he says this, the primary focus of my initial evangelical training centered upon the benefits of Christ in my salvation rather than Christ himself. I would read the gospel narratives and think to myself, wow, how can I appropriate these great blessings for myself? How must I live my life to tap into what Christ can do for me? Because 
It is only through him that I can be blessed. Like many, if not most Christians today, I thought of Christ in terms of what he offered rather than who he is and who I am in him. I perceived the gospel offer of salvation as a gift of grace that merely came through Christ rather than in Christ. I really didn't see him as the personification of the gospel, that he is the gospel, that none of the benefits of saving grace exist separately from him, but only in him. Well, he goes on to say, when Christ himself becomes our very life, our character and conduct will increasingly bear the fruit of his righteous affections, desires, longings, virtues, and behaviors. What an astounding thought, he says, that he is in us and that we are in him. Because we are united to Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, our old self has been crucified with him. Even as Christ's death was followed by the resurrection, our death to sin and our, baptize, our baptism into his death result in a resurrection to a new life in Christ. And then he says, Paul summarized these amazing parallels, saying in Romans 6, 4 through 7, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. True union with Jesus, being in Christ, is the power. Power over sin, power to obey, Again, listen to our pastor here. He says, true saving faith is obedient faith. It is the living manifestation of the good work that Christ began in us and has promised to perfect. It is living proof that God has miraculously given us a radically new nature that changes not only our behaviors, but our desires. Get this book. This is a good book. You will love it. It is such a gift. Our pastor is a gift to us. He's gifted. And he brings much glory to Christ in so many ways, but especially in this book. You will be blessed by it. So why do we often not live as, uh, or forgive me, why do we often live as though we are not united to Christ? Why do we deny the power of being in Christ? Well, I, I believe this is an aspect that has been attacked for so long. These waves of attack, assault on the church um, that we've been affected by the culture around us. It, it makes sense that the enemy knows that he cannot snatch us from the Father, but that he wants to rob us of joy 
and he wants to rob God of glory, and he'll stop at nothing to do so. So to keep us from being considerate, mindful of the united, the union that we have available to us with Christ to, to keep us from that power, he, it's an attack on the church. Listen to Spurgeon. On the back of this little book, there's a quote from Spurgeon. I always love Spurgeon. He says, There is no joy in the world like union with Christ. The more we can feel it, the happier we are, whatever our circumstances. It doesn't have anything to do with our circumstances. Union with God. Oh, I want to ramble on about this because we could do this. So catch up. Let's do this later. But the word tells us so clearly that we have him. And in his presence is the fullness of joy. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. We are his and he is ours. He's the best part of eternal life. And he's ours right now. I submit that the more that we know and believe that we are united to Christ and understand the power and joy that comes in union with him, the more that we will walk in freedom from sin and, and be about the good work that he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. Because Jesus is the gospel. Union with him is the power unto salvation and every good work. Let me close us in prayer. God, you're so kind to us. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Unite our hearts to fear your name, O Lord. Thank you that your word is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Thank you for all that you've done, all that we've sung about and all that we've heard here today. Please, Lord, if there be any here who don't know you, who've come through the wide gate, We've sat here week after week and year after year and somehow are apart from you, haven't closed with you, Christ, in the proper way. Oh, God, do that thing that only you can do. Please, have mercy. Lord, help every one of us here to love you more today. Be glorified in our lives. Let us magnify your name so that others would be drawn to you. What an incredible mystery that you've given us. What a wonderful gospel that we, we worship and praise here today. Help us to trust you at your word, just to take you at your word, to believe these things to be true and to walk and be changed forever by them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.